Hello and welcome to Ideas Matter, the podcast from BOI Charity that explores the important ideas and intellectual trends of our time. In this, the final podcast in our series on race and racism, which was the theme of our second Academy Online event, we feature two talks that reflect on the theme of the new elite and the institutionalisation of identity. The speakers are Inaya Follerin Iman, the founder of Equiano Project and soon-to-be presenter of her GB News, and Frank Faradi, a sociologist, public intellectual, author of numerous books, including recent works, Democracy Under Siege and Why Borders Matter. My short introduction today is going to focus on um, three elements. And the first is kind of how um, blackness has now become, um, come to represent a kind of permanent victim status identity. The second is this idea of like the new elites and how anti-racism um, has now in some senses been kind of instrumentalized and, and weaponized to often provide moral cover to elites and to signal their cultural distinction from the supposed lower orders of society. And the third is um, how the workplace now has very much become the kind of new battleground for supposed anti-racism. And I guess I wanted to start off with um, just a few anecdotes. So as part of the Equino project, we've been doing a lot of talks to, to kind of sixth formers in schools and universities. And um, one of the things that was said recently in a talk that we did really struck me. And um, so it was in a kind of um, comprehensive school and there was a, and I, and I kind of asked the students kind of what comes to mind when they think about racism. And a kind of black kid put his hand up and said that he personally had never experienced racism and he'd not actually seen it, but he just knows it's there. And another, a second school that I went at was a private school that was predominantly white. And then I asked the students um, kind of what comes to mind when they think of race and education. And um, a kind of student put their hand up and said that, um, you know, in our school, there's not many uh, black kids. And, and that kind of is an example of how of institutional racism. And despite the fact the area that the school was in the kind of rural countryside, which was overwhelmingly white. And so those two things really struck me of just how much young people in particular, um, even before engaging deeply in the subject have really kind of internalized um, and absorbed many of these narratives um, about race, despite actually revealing, um, for example, the previous kid, that they hadn't actually experienced anything. So that's really, really telling. But these three elements that um, I kind of stated in the beginning, to me really encapsulate the kind of shift um, in the discourse on race away from like the political and the economic and to the personal. And it's very much become a kind of question of personal interactions rather than kind of structural class interactions. And that's very much the kind of site of contestation at the moment at a societal level. And as has been said in kind of previous uh, lectures today, uh, when we kind of hark back to the civil rights movement, we really think about it as predominantly a kind of universalist humanist project um, which kind of argued for each person to be seen as equals regardless of race and um, you know society should be based off of our, our kind of common humanity and which kind of transcends any superficial racialized category um, that society um, imposes upon us and this principle has been obviously transformational and, and kind of has been the very principle that led to significant kind of social cultural legal and political changes and this conversation is obviously obviously happening as a result of a seemingly kind of rehabilitated racial thinking that has kind of been repackaged um, as a progressive project. And indeed, you know, racism still persists and there is a reality of racial disparities. The meaning of that is essentially what is contested and the kind of scope and scale to which that is still a problem in British society and obviously society at large. But um, 
there is this kind of Martin Luther King quote, which is kind of, I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. And that's a, obviously a phrase that's now regarded as quite archaic, which is a just initial demonstration of how far the debate has moved. But I wanted to also start off with focusing it on Britain, because I think that because critical race theory has now frequently become the, the dominant way in which we think about the way the conversation has moved, I think we often forget that the kind of discourse on race, particularly in Britain, has been shifting um, as kind of early as the 90s. And many people point to the McPherson report as a significant kind of turning point to where um, the kind of identity politics and victim politics became institutionalized in Britain. So Civitas, you know, the think tank, um, when reviewing the kind of Stephen Lawrence inquiry, um, argued that his kind of procedures and findings and receptions was an example of the kind of fanatical mindset of the militant anti-racist. And, and that was obviously quite a few decades ago. So this conversation has been happening for a while. But the McPherson report um, really kind of institutionalized kind of the question of race uh, in public life and, and kind of cast the state, um, not necessarily as a kind of propagator of racist policies and violence, but as a way to protect minorities. And that kind of followed on with kind of um, regulation of speech in, in the private, um, in the home, but also, for example, schools and, and kind of the civil service went through drastic changes as a way to kind of eradicate institution, institutional racism. And that concept institutional racism actually became solidified then, which um, not was about kind of um, power, it was divorced from kind of questions of power, um, but became about processes, attitudes and behaviours that amount to discrimination through unwitting prejudice, ignorance, thoughtlessness and racist stereotyping, and that was kind of their phrasing. And so again, racism already was shifting um, away from the kind of politics of economics and class uh, and power to that of kind of behaviours of individuals and speech and interpersonal um, relations. And from the McPherson report, um, that in many ways started the, the, the industry that um, we now have that is focused on the question of race and placing racism as the kind of go-to reason for racial disparities. And we saw that with like the Lamy review and several other reviews. And this has been a game that many politicians in Britain have been very willing to play, again, pre, um, prior to the kind of Black Lives Matter um, emerging. And as recently as Theresa May, um, saying that you know she wants to tackle burning injustices of racism before the Lamy review was even completed. And so many politicians have used the question of race um, as a way to kind of signal their moral superiority um, as a kind of cover. And this has been, you know, really frustratingly, um, despite living in a society that has made so much progress on quest so many different questions as they pertain to race. So whether that is in education and the kind of way in which um, British Nigerian children and other um, ethnic minority groups have been doing significantly well, but actually the huge levels of upward social mobility that young um, ethnic minority um, children are experiencing, particularly in contrast to their parents. Um, so that is the kind of way in which the conversation was already playing out in Britain. And this was obviously combined with um, the increasing kind of cult preoccupation in academia, both in Britain and America, with issues surrounding deconstruction, critical race theory, postmodernism, and decolonization. And you know, when I was an undergraduate between 2015 and 2019, there was a really um, huge movement in my university called Why Is My Curriculum White? And I remember going to their seminar on decolonizing gender. And this was 
full of students and academics, arguing that gender was a white supremacist um, construct imposed on colonized bodies. And um, prior to Western interaction with um, kind of former colonial states, these were kind of rosy utopias and egalitarian societies. So these conversations have simultaneously just been completely um, reshifting the space about kind of how we think about the past and history and the place of kind of ethnic minority people, particularly black people in society. Well, obviously, um, these trends really, really accelerated in, in such a profound way um, this year earlier with the kind of Black Lives Matter protest, which was already a kind of powder keg due to the lockdown, but also these um, existing trends. And so books like White Fragility became a huge bestseller and um, became um, the language that was used in that book and, and kind of critical race theory and became incredibly popular. And so critical race theory has now kind of very much been popularized, but you know, it's central tenants um, as many people have, have written about and argued are a significant departure to the kind of um, humanist universalist ideals um, that were championed so passionately um, during the collective exercise of agency you know, in the 60s and so on. And so obviously critical race theory um, rejects the kind of earlier Martin Luther King statement that um, you know, society can actually transcend racism. It, it denotes that kind of racism is a social reality. And um, due to America's founding, um, it is uh, everything that comes out of that uh, country um, is inherently steeped in, in the kind of blood of, of racism and violence. And that translates to objectivity, freedom of speech and so on. And it's kind of incredibly anti-humanist, um, this idea that human beings aren't a totality, but are essentially just competing um, categories of identity and this idea of intersectionality, where we are not a totality, but are made up of different intersecting identities and, and um, our authenticity is um, related to where we stand in, in relation to dynamics of power and privilege. What's really interesting about critical race theory, however, is how it's still, regardless of it being claimed to be anti-racist, still centers uh, whiteness um, as the kind of organizing principle of society. And so racism is not overcome by us standing together as equals, but it's overcome or, or never overcome, but it's responded to um, by white people self-flagellating, um, expressing their white privilege, apologizing and, and kind of giving up space. And, and, and black people are left with no agency and no ability to define their destiny or future. Again, such a significant contrast to what was argued previously and due to the black lives matter protests and the kind of globalization of, of american racial discourse accelerated by social media and the internet we've had this kind of importation wholesale but there's already been many instances where it's not been very um fitting uh, to britain so for example there was the kind of adele uh, cultural appropriation uh, scandal that happened which both revealed something very interesting about critical race theory his poor application um, internationally, but also the way in which the kind of British um, specificities are being completely trampled on. So, for example, you know, the Notting Hill Carnival actually emerged as a way to uh, integrate people, a kind of fusion of the West Indian community um, with, with kind of uh, English, white English people at that time. And that created something new and beautiful that we could all participate in as cultural appropriation was actually a positive thing. And this discourse has kind of recast it as something negative. Um, but one thing that's been really striking as well has just been the kind of speed and willingness to which this ideology um, has been embraced by the elites, kind of political, cultural, media, 
and technological. And this is not, I argue, just because, for example, it's become a preoccupation in academia and students graduate and then become part of the cultural elite. It's also just because, um, it's also partly because of the ideology itself. And, and this is something, as I said, that's been embraced um, by the left and the right. And for the left, obviously, it's been very much um, been part of the kind of story of the erosion of class politics and the kind of collapse of many of these great and, and powerful and meaningful debates that occupied the, the last century up until really the 80s, questions of kind of economics and politics and moral questions. And um, the kind of politics of identity provide this kind of uh, moral cover, this kind of decorative gloss that um, preserve the power um, of the kind of elites um, to the detriment often of the way in which economics often unfairly um, excludes people um, in society. And we've really seen this through the popularization of concepts like white privilege, which actually provide no meaningful solutions to any of the issues that have been raised. You know, there's two definitions of white privilege and it depends on who's saying it. One person says that it's just, if you're gonna be, have an issue in society, the one thing it won't be is racism and that means you're privileged. But again, that challenges the concept of what we conventionally understand as privilege, which is something, for example, unearned, not a kind of fundamental right, which is to not be discriminated against. And the other idea of kind of whiteness um, as a structure. Um, so even a kind of black person, for example, can um, have closer proximity to whiteness that the extent to which they um, um, absorb or propagate certain ideas. So this is why we hear uh, black people that challenge the idea that society is embedded in racism are frequently said that they're either acting white or um, somehow, you know, the, the kind of stooges of a white supremacist society. But it functions in other ways as well, which is to kind of um, increase suspicion um, amongst people that um, previously may have actually had strong solidarity based off of economic interests and now um, see, uh, seem to kind of think of themselves primarily as racial groups, um, not kind of a working class as such. And I also think it, in some senses, benefits uh, wealthier black people who um, often use the kind of phrase of, of white privilege and in order to, to um, get more representation um, in, in other spaces. So I think it encourages us to kind of think the worst of each other whilst also providing no, no, no meaningful explanation about the kind of complex ways in which um, people are advantaged and disadvantaged. Um, but the, another way in which um, this conversation has been weaponized uh, by the elites has really been um, in the workplace. And I think, you know, some of the other speakers have also talked about that too. I'm definitely obviously in no doubt that some institutions and corporations may be genuinely committed to Black Lives Matter. I've spoken to many um, corporate leaders who genuinely want to do something um, and perhaps this is the only thing that is being said most vociferously that you can do. But it's been incredibly fascinating how capitalism in particular is able to kind of adapt to um, different cultural phenomenons while, without denting the kind of fundamental um, economic relations. And I think that this has also been um, embraced to a lesser extent by the right as, um, for example, historically, their kind of rule was based off of almost a kind of born to rule birthright. And now this uh, politics of identity gives them a kind of new justification for, for ruling um, to kind of educate the, the, the kind of masses um, against the kind of right way of thinking. But for the left, 
I think it's been incredibly damaging the kind of old management labor issues of kind of paying conditions again essentially the class struggle has become more about personal recognition um, especially in regards to kind of identity race and sexual orientation and the kind of policing of language and behavior and we really see this again for example the kind of controversy um, around uh, Ben and Jerry's who kind of use the rhetoric of the left against them when they say we must dismantle white supremacy um, in order to kind of retain vertical power whilst giving the appearance of they're not exploiting labor but instead promoting egalitarianism and positive discrimination and this is again further compounded with issues like unconscious bias training and diversity training where specialists are invited in to reveal our kind of biases and, and subconscious um, prejudices and, and this often ends up functioning as a way to kind of um, discipline workers and delegitimize freedom of thought and expression in the workplace, playing on largely already one arguments about racial equality, arguments that most people accept, where management now becomes the arbiters of social justice. Um, and obviously some corporations are responding merely cynically, you know, young people are now the consumers to whom most media and advertising is directed. They are frequently regarded as woke and anti-racist and responsive to the kind of virtue signaling behavior um, that they often practice themselves. And therefore the world is then being reflected back at them. But I think obviously if you're a capitalist, you know, be confident in your defense of inequality um, and, and the kind of politics of identity as it's emerged at the moment only seeks to again, provide moral cover and enable people to assert moral superiority and virtue without actually um, addressing in any way um, some of the fundamentals that actually the complex reasons why people um, have a range of um, inequality and disparities. So now we're essentially in a position um, which is pretty much a minefield and we've seen this with the kind of fallout from COVID-19 which instead of being recast as perhaps one of the biggest transfers of wealth from the bottom to the top the primary discourse on, on COVID-19 you know in public has been about whether or not the virus is racist and I think um, black people now are frequently led to believe that racism is worse a problem than it actually is in society, fostering a sense of alienation and resentment and general hostility. And white people um, are led to believe that they can do no right, um, despite massive progress um, that has happened. Um, and in fact, the generation coming up may well be one of the most tolerant generations to difference of race, maybe not difference of ideology or views, but definitely difference of race, I think, you know, in British history. So class politics has, has been replaced with identity politics. And um, I think it's led to significant disenfranchisement of um, large phase of the population, whilst, as I said, um, failing to dent um, the kind of fundamental class relations um, of society. That's me. The way that I see it following on from Inaya, when she talked about the traditional notion of the ruling class having this idea that they were born to rule, is that the contemporary expression of that is usually voiced by the phrase, I'm here to raise your awareness, or we need to raise your awareness. There's a kind of cultural power that they seem to possess. And that cultural power is linked to the institutionalization of identity and identity politics which has become so pervasive that it easily leaps from one area to another. And I think you'd find that many of the things that uh, uh, Inaya was talking about and others have talked about early on in relation to race will also raise its head in relation to 
other identity groups who have ad adopted pretty much the same kind of style and approach. I think it's important to realize that when we reflect on the question, why has the ideology of the BLM and why has critical race theory gained so much ground in such a short period of time, it's important to realize that the reason for that is because its ideals were already imminent. It was already existent within the elites itself. It's not that elites and corporations have been suddenly converted to something that was alien to them. That's not really how it works. They themselves had already began to uh, promote many of these ideas for, uh, a, a, a long time ago. And the point I wanna emphasize is that um, there is actually no progression between what some people have called the old anti-racism and the new anti-racism. It's not like the new anti-racism is the old anti-racism plus identity politics. It's not that somehow that has occurred. I think you'll find that the big changes occur society-wise. So for example, one of the big changes that occurs is the way in which uh, therapeutic culture kicks in and begins to influence all dimensions of human experience, where public life itself be begins to be expressed, not in the language of morality. You know, we no longer talk about moral concepts and moral categories, but instead, you know, we talk about uh, therapeutic categories of being healthy, being well, being ill. You know, these are the kind of concepts that really begin to sort of kick in. And when that occurs, in a sense, when, when, when a therapeutic moment arrives, then inevitably everything, including racism and anti-racism begins to be, get infected by that. So that's, that's something that I just want to flag up, you know, uh, uh, at this particular stage in time. The other thing I wanna flag up, and this really <clears throat> relates to some of the earlier discussions, is that people have said that, you know, it's, you know there's a problem of assimilation you know, or there's a discussion of you know, why there's a problem with assimilation or who assimilates. My argument is, is that in the current era, assimilation in the universalistic humanist sense is not possible, right? It's not really possible because society hasn't got a central narrative to which you can assimilate, right? It isn't the case that there's a, a kind of idea of Britishness, you know, I often think it's quite interesting that, especially people on the right, often criticize critical race theory or they criticize the academia for being so bad and everything, but they never actually ask the question, you know, what is it that they're offering as an alternative? What is Britishness, for example? What does it mean to be American that people who genuinely would want to assimilate, if they did want to transcend their identity, what is it that they could uh, embrace? And I think that's the, central problem that we have ourselves as well, because unless we're able to give a proper clear account of what it is that we want people to join and assimilate to, then it's almost impossible to have the cultural intellectual weapons to take on identity politics and identitarianism. And that's the central dilemma uh, that we're faced with at the moment. And to give you a, an example of what I'm talking about, Imagine if you're a six-year-old black kid or a six-year-old white working-class kid and you're going to school in British society. The pedagogy that you're exposed to is called the pedagogy of relevance. In other words, you want to teach what is relevant to a black person. 
you want to teach what is relevant to a white person. You want black people to discover themselves somewhere. You want white people to discover themselves somewhere. And when you have that kind of educational process, which is in an incipient sense, already suggests that your particular circumstance, your particular identity entitles you to a particular kind of education, which is what is being discussed, then that is what you are socialized into. So by the time you get to university, by the time you're 18 or 19, you have already adopted a standpoint, a perspective, an epistemological standpoint, which is already antithetical to anything that is remotely universalistic, that's immediately suspicious of any, uh, any cost towards assimilation, anything that goes beyond who you are. And that educational system has been institutionalized to a greater and lesser extent for a very, very long time in all the schools, you know, private and public, whatever, you know, you kind of want to talk about it. And I think what's important about this is that it kind of creates a situation where that kind of education together with the whole psychological turn of society does put forward a situation where identity becomes something that in a sense operates behind the scenes at every single stage. Now, what is identity? What identity is, is a demand for recognition and affirmation. You know, how are you going to recognize and affirm black lives, right? Or womanhood or any other identity? Well, the question then becomes, who does the validation and who does the recognition? Where, is these, where are these moral resources, these political resources that entitle you, entitle you to validate and to recognize? And it seems to me that that, that kind of privilege actually exists within our cultural uh, uh, establishment, our political institutions, which are then in, then in the business of using that cultural power to essentially determine which kind of identities are validated and which kind of identities are spoiled. And over the last period, there's been a continuous political battle about this particular question. You know, the, the battle over trans rights, I think is a very interesting example in this because there you can see two identities being very strongly contested as to which is the bad one and which is the good one. I think it's much clearer in, in relation to black and white because there uh, the, our elites have decided that, that certain kinds of identities, that, that's to say black identity is morally superior to the troubled uh, sort of uh, white one. And the way they kind of worked it out is that from their point of view, these two identities have become coterminous with being the victimizer and the victimized. The victimizer and the victimized. And therefore what you've got is a situation where the, uh, the ability to make a distinction between the two kind of identities gives you a, a tremendous amount of ability to manage and to run people's affair. Now, one of the things about identity politics that you know, is extremely troublesome is that once you have adopted a particular identity as your own, it becomes self-perpetuating. Now, if you got an identity of a, as a black person, as a, somebody that's been put upon and is a victim of society, then you cannot give up that ideal of being a victimized individual without giving up your identity. It's impossible. Those uh, characteristics become characteristics for life. They become entirely fossilized. And that is the reason why 
from the perspective of black identity, racism is always getting worse. It doesn't really matter what's going on. From that perspective, it's unthinkable that racism will ever be solved. It's completely unthinkable, as it is unthinkable that there could be steady amelioration. In fact, on the contrary, you'll find that whenever you read newspaper articles, you'll find that in the university system, racism is a far greater problem today than it was in the past. You'll find that in, you know, there's all these different discussions, there's far greater racial discrimination in the labor market than before and in the army or whatever the institution is. And that comes not from people lying or making things up. It comes from the way that identity works. It's the way that the perception, the psychological dispositions are really sort of created. And similarly, you know, sort of from that perspective, having white privilege or being having white supremacy is, is, is not something you can detach from white people. It's not something that you can just simply say, oh, now we've got a white identity that is supremacy free or privilege free. That is again, an impossibility. So those two kinds of counter concepts become increasingly uh, fossilized, become increasingly important. And it's not really possible uh, from the identity point of view to alter or to transform that. And I think in that sense, with the institutionalization of identity, we have we come across something that is truly scary and truly significant. One of the things that we haven't really discussed uh, in relation to the institutionalization of identity and the way that identities become de-individuated and ultimately dehumanized is the fact that uh, uh, by their very, very existence, it gives, in a sense, uh, a new meaning to public life. You know, the new meaning that it gives to public life is essentially uh, the demand that your awareness and everybody's awareness of these diff different kinds of problems needs to be somehow raised. You know, raising awareness, you know, sort of, uh, or re-educating yourself are, are, to me, the most, the, the new original concept in the race relations domain. And we hear it time and time again, go away, educate yourself, or go away and, and, and have your awareness raised. It's a very important concept because when you're talking about raising your awareness or, or go away and becoming re-educated, what you're talking about is not anything to do with behavior. It's got nothing to do with actions that you've taken. It's not a call to behave differently in public. In other words, uh, it's nothing to do with anything that can be decided and worked out in the public domain. When you're talking about going to re-educate yourself, when you're talking about your awareness being raised, then what we're talking about is how your internal life, how the way you are psychologically and mentally can be altered. It's, what it really means, it's a kind of political therapy and now you might say it's a bit of an exaggeration calling that political therapy, but just about everything that we hear in relation to the institutionalization of identity is really all about the re-socializing of people, the re-educating of people. That becomes a dominant emphasis. And when you take a step back as to why this is, it seems to me that the impulse towards the re-socialization 
of society and the re-education of society is driven by an ambition that it's far, far broader than anything to do with race relations. It's to do with the way in which a new political culture can be created. One where you have, on the one hand, uh, a relatively small minority of sensitive people whose awareness has been raised, and the vast majority of people who have got a, an awareness deficit. And the question becomes you know, how you manage that. And in the name of that, you're able to do a number of things. You can, for example, police speech, police the way people express themselves, because the way people express themselves and the speech acts that they're involved in may well contradict the demands of, of the raising of awareness. And when you actually look at what's been happening in our society, particularly in relation to the domain of race relations, but also in relation to gender relations, you have a situation where we're continually being asked to re-educate ourselves, for example, in relation to our customs. Many of the traditional customs that we have are now seen as being inherently racist. There's something inherently wrong with them. And therefore we have got to get rid of those customs and adopt entirely new kind of customs. I think in many ways, one of the most uh, interesting thing from a sociological point of view is the taking of the knee. I mean, it's very symbolic, the taking of the knee, because historically the taking of the knee or kneeling, you know, sort of uh, um, expresses a very clear authority relationship where you take the knee, you kneel down against people who are in some shape or form, your moral superiors. And somehow we've kind of, without any discussion, without discussing the inner meaning of that ritual, are pressurizing people into the taking of the knee. And it's not something that we discuss sufficiently well and, and, and intelligently, but the rise of the taking of the knee is paralleled by the loss of other kinds of customs. These are customs that have got to do with the past. Look at the way that re-education has directed its emphasis on language. The number of words that we are not allowed to use anymore. The number of expressions that are now pathologized. The way in which you gotta use a new kind of language to demonstrate that we are aware. And not only that, but the way in which, you know, sort of language is used almost as a way of uh, provoking a reaction. So for example, you know, one day everybody thinks that they got to use the expression BAME or BAMI or B-A-M-E because that's a really right on kind of expression. Then you realize that, oh, that's totally wrong because that violates the, uh, the kind of the sensibility and, 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 and the identity of all the different groups that are somehow subhumed by that. And there's that kind of continuous use of, of, of language control, which, which is really quite important. Re-education also means that we have got to change who we are loyal to. You know, where do our loyalties lie? You know, where, you know, what's our duty to other people in society? And in particular, uh, and I wish we had a, a bit of time to, uh, to kind of discuss this, what it does is it kind of changes our sense of the past. I cannot emphasize how important that is in relation to the institutionalized education. 
you can never totally lose your sense of the past because every individual got a narrative as to where they come from. We all have an idea where we come from and that's part of our humanity to have that. But when the past, our sense of the past that we were born with and which used to be the norm in society becomes systematically challenged to the point at which you can get a poet like Ted Hughes being crucified on the ground that one of his ancestors 300 years ago might have been a slave owner. And therefore that's a reflection on his poetry on, on who it is. Then you know that the re-education process, which is really directed at both detaching ourselves from our conventional past, but at the same time, changing our past, our sense of the past in line with this new aware form of wokeism really does change fundamentally what our humanity is, is really all about. So basically what I wanna end on is by suggesting that the re-education process that is going on through the promotion of identity politics is not really about race as such. It just so happens that race becomes the most explosive and the most sensitive way in which this kind of dy uh, dynamic, this kind of uh, ideology can become institutionalized. It's far more powerful than feminism is because you know we haven't got within feminism the moral equivalent of slavery. You know, we haven't got within feminism the moral equivalent of imperialist colonialism of Africa. We haven't got that kind of uh, sort of dramatic narrative that can play that kind of a role. And therefore race itself has emerged and has become something that is different to the past, but the difference comes not from anything to do with racism itself. It's got nothing to do with what's in, imminent within the relations between white and black people. It's got to do with the way in which the therapeutic turn in public life and the fossilization of identity has become the main cultural resource on which cultural power by the elite is continuously exercised. And it seems to me that's the nub of the matter. And therefore our job, it seems to me, is to offer a counter narrative, not to go back to the Martin Luther days, not to go back to Du Bois or any of the old uh, sort of uh, uh, people who talked about anti-racism in the past, as good as they were, but to find ways and means of demystifying the present day narrative about racial relations to find an intellectual alternative that's superior to critical race theory. I mean, I heard a lot of people sneeringly dismiss critical race theory without asking the question, well, are our ideas subtle enough, coherent enough to be able to engage with that and to take it apart? Because unless you can do that, then you're fighting a hopeless kind of battle. So what I'm saying is let's not sneer about those people because Sneering is not gonna solve anything. And sneering overlooks the fact that those people are actually the products of a society, not of their own making, but of a society that has made them into what, what it is. Thank you very much. You've been listening to talks by Anaya Follerin Iman and Frank Faradi, who've been reflecting on the theme of the new elite and the institutionalization of identity. The talks were recorded at the Academy Online event, Race and Racism. This is the final episode in this series, 
but we'll be back soon with a new series on the use and abuse of history. To ensure you don't miss any episodes of Ideas Matter, please do subscribe, whether via our series playlists on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify or your favourite podcast feed. And for more details of the Academy event where this lecture was recorded and to access a series of recommended readings to help you explore the themes in greater depth, have a look at the accompanying notes to this podcast or visit the Academy at our website, theboi.co.uk. Finally, if you're able to give a financial donation to support this podcast or any of the BOI Charities projects, then head over to our website and hit the donate button. Many thanks. Thanks.